0: Hello and
1: welcome to the Friday, October 23rd, 2020, 11 days, but who's counting, edition of On Iowa Politics. <laughs> this week, <laughs> early voting, the Senate race, polling, and Biden-Trump. Hi, I'm James Lynch of the Cedar Rapids Gazette. With me today are Brett Hayworth of the Sioux City Journal. Good morning, Brett. Good morning. Tom Barton of the Quad City Times. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. Amy Rivers of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. Good morning, Amy.
2: Good morning, James.
1: Aaron Murphy, Lee Newspaper, Statehouse Bureau Chief. Good morning, Aaron. Good morning, James. And Gazette Opinion Editor Todd Dorman. Good morning, Todd. Good morning. You can find us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to On Iowa Politics on iTunes and Stitcher. First up, early voting. Once again, early voting seems to be a hit. Already about 30% of Iowa's 2.2 million voters have cast their ballots and another 210,000 have requested absentee ballots. Uh, According to Secretary of State Paul Pate, nearly as many or more people have voted as of Thursday as in the 40 days of early voting in 2016. And there's 11 days left. Interest groups and political parties seem intent on throwing sand into the gears of the process. The RNC and Trump campaign has some... Democratic aligned groups have been going to court to expand or contract the process to serve their ends. But Amy, um, voters don't seem to have a problem with early voting and you've seen record turnout there in Black Hawk County. Um, What's it like?
2: It's crazy. I mean, I mean, they're saying they're seeing more. So for, for reference in 2012, that was the record year for Black Hawk County and it probably was for, for a lot of counties. I'm sure that Black Hawk County is no outlier. Um, But in that, in that time, there were 32,000 ballots requested, and 62% of them had been returned as of roughly now. Now, 2020, there's been 35,000 requests for absentee ballots, despite nobody being able to go to door to door and, you know, make you sign up for a ballot request. And 68% of those have been returned so far. So more have been requested, more have been returned. Um, We don't have a political party breakdown by county, obviously, but it's just really telling how many more people are, despite all the pandemic restrictions, really making an effort to vote.
1: Are people voting by mail or in person? I mean, do you know what the split is there?
2: Yeah it's both actually um so when I was talking to Grant Veter our, our auditor he was telling me you know we've got more absentee ballots yes but people are also um early voting more I actually talked to a voter who said that she went to this early voting site and was appalled that there was no social distancing and I you know was letting the auditor know about that I was like have you heard this and he said I can't believe it. Like there's been way too many. We usually get a hundred or less per day at these early voting sites. And they're mostly, you know, retirees or other people. And now we're getting lines. They had a thousand people in five days at one early voting site, which is more than 200 voters a day. Um, They're just, they just weren't necessarily, I think, ready. They were, they were thinking there was going to be a record, but I think the amount of voters has really surprised them.
1: I know Lynn County Auditor Joel Miller said that they've had 13,000 people vote in person, which really surprises me because of the pandemic. Uh, mm-hmm. I didn't think people would be going to the polls uh, right. to vote. I mean, if you're voting early, it, it seems like mm-hmm. you would mail it in. But uh, I guess that's not necessarily the case. Um, Brett, what, uh, what does early voting look like over in Woodbury County?
3: Yeah, and just to step back a little bit, um, when I talked to our auditor, Pat Gill, um, back in September, he was predicting, um, certainly a record turnout or record early voting for Woodbury County. And at that point he had said perhaps as high as 24,000 people in Woodbury County would, would vote. Um, and for, for comparison, the record, uh, for any year was 2016, um, when there was 19, just under 20,000, um, voted early that year and. Um, so early voting definitely got off to a good start, um, here and, um, Pat Gill said that he thinks it has peaked in Woodbury County that, you know, like the first, I guess, two and a half weeks or so, it was really strong. And, but now he's seeing like the number of of absentee requests and the numbers that are being returned by mail just has started to fall off in the last few days. Um, Mm
4: -hmm.
3: for, I guess, sorry, let me. Find the number um, at this point, Fifteen thousand two hundred had come in. Um, that, that was as of Tuesday. That, so that was I wrote a story at the two-week point on Tuesday, and uh, of that, it's about a thousand more um, Democrats have requested and returned uh, ballots than Republicans. And I certainly he said um, that the trend is absolutely, you know, more, more Democrats are, are requesting and returning. Uh, I was expecting maybe a little bigger gap than a thousand based on, you know, other reports I'd seen nationwide, um, from the parties, but certainly Democrats are leading. And one other observation, um, um he, and this is something he said the last few times that we I've written this article or on this topic, <clears throat> um, that's. He certainly believes that, that the difference in the parties is absolutely be- because of the messaging from Donald Trump, you know, mm-hmm. casting aspersions on, on mail-in voting and, and doubts mm-hmm. on, you know, how, how legit it is.
1: Sure, mm-hmm. sure. How about the Quad Cities area, Tom? Uh, pretty busy early voting down there.
0: Uh, <clears throat> Yeah. Um, you know, Scott County is, um, is, 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 um, seeing, uh, early voting, um, similar to, to what Amy had to say with, uh, with Black Hat County and, with uh, Brett had to say with the disparity between, between the parties. So, um, uh, more than 51,000, um, absentee ballots had been requested and so far a little more than 40,000, um, have been returned. Um, and, um, About uh, roughly twice as many of the ballots returned um, have been um, Democrats uh, compared to to, to Republicans. Um, Democrats have requested a little more than 25,000 absentee ballots and had returned a little more than 20,600 compared to Republicans. They requested about 14,000 and so far have uh, returned um, uh, almost uh, 11,000. Um, and and it, it, we're seeing a pretty um, a pretty good split between um, mail-in versus um, in-person uh, early, early voting.
1: Mm-hmm. Looking at the county-by-county county breakdowns on early voting, Todd, we see Democrats, as everybody has uh, noted, uh, Democrats are voting in larger numbers than Republicans, at least in most places. Butler County uh, or Grassley County, as other, some people call it. Uh, is an exception. And up in Sioux County, four times as many Republicans have voted uh, as Democrats. Do you think this reflects enthusiasm or a tradition of Election Day voting or, as Brett was just saying, Republican loyalty to Trump who continues to question the, the mail-in voting process?
5: Yeah, well, I think it's probably a mix of, of those things. Although I think there is an enthusiasm gap, and I don't know if I would call it enthusiasm necessarily. I think anger sometimes is a is a great motivator for voters, and I, I think on the Democratic side, there are a lot of folks who have been waiting a long time to cast a ballot against Donald Trump, and, and that's part of the reason you've seen so much early voting and in-person early voting is that people want to make sure they're they get their vote filled out, and they also want to make sure it gets to the auditor's office without any without any problems because you know on the democratic side there's been a lot of talk of the postal service and the changes that have been made there so you know it's like in in my job i'm you know processing letters to the editor uh where you know our inbox is just overflowing with letters expressing anger about donald trump and how he needs to be voted out and and we're, we're getting almost very very few sort of letters defending trump or or That are, you know, saying that, you know, he's done a good job and you should reelect him. It's, you know, it's a a pretty sizable gap. I'm hearing from those folks, uh, you know, when they're criticizing editorials or things that we write, but they're not writing letters to the editor. So, yeah, go ahead.
1: That's that silent majority. I mean, they're not writing letters.
5: (laughs) They're not always so silent. But, uh, (laughs) yeah, I think there's. I think there is a, 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 you know, there's a, there is an enthusiasm gap, and I think it's been demonstrated in other in other places, and also in some polling data. So, uh, that's that's one problem for Republicans. But, you know, traditionally they tend to vote on election day, so maybe that that'll uh, that tradition will stick. Uh, and some of those voters aren't as worried about the pandemic, obviously, as as some Democrats. So maybe they're waiting to to uh, arrive in mass at the polls on the third. <laughs>
6: Hey, James, James, I wanted to just throw something in here real quick because uh, it was something that I, I had been trying to figure out and and uh, and I can't remember who it was that helped me and, and it, I thought it was really interesting and maybe everybody else is smarter than me and already figured this out on their own, but but in case there's someone out there as, as dumb as me, I thought this might be interesting to share um, and we're going to talk about polling in a little bit, but it had been interesting to me, the Monmouth poll in particular Um has some separate modeling for high and low turnout results. Like yeah. they have their base results and then they project high and low turnout. And what has been interesting to me is the low turnout models, the Democratic candidates have been doing better. They're they the Democrats numbers get right. better under the low turnout model. Which is I which was kind of interesting to me. I tried to figure it yeah. out because historically speaking, when turnout is up, Democrats do better. And what someone, and I wish I could remember now and give them credit, what someone pointed out to me was that, and and it's kind of, and it ties to what we're talking about here to, to circle all the way back around. Democrats are voting so in such heavy numbers early right now, and Republicans aren't as much. Uh, again, Republicans tend to vote more on election day, so their their turnout is still coming. At this point, if turnout is low, the only reason to explain that now at this point would be that fewer Republicans turn out because Democrats are already voting. They're already Mm -hmm. casting their ballots. So if we at this point, if we have low turnout, it likely means that fewer Republicans will be casting votes. So I just that I just thought that was interesting analysis of some of those polling numbers and as it Mm -hmm. relates to the voting
1: numbers. Yeah, yeah. I guess that makes sense. Um, I mean, if you cut off voting right now, uh, I think it'd be a Democratic landslide. Uh, Aaron, uh, among those uh, who are new to voting this year are about 2,500 felons who have taken advantage of Governor Tim Reynolds' executive order to uh, allow them to participate in elections again. Uh, One advocate of restoring felon voting rights called that number disappointingly low. Why is that?
6: Well, uh, mainly because uh, the executive order made roughly 30,000 people eligible. Uh, so the, the consensus among advocates was that 2,500 number is great. It's wonderful to see. It's a really good start. But it's still a, a, it's 7% of the number of people became eligible. So it's a very small sliver of the pie. Now, we're talking literally, you know, the executive order was issued in early August and these numbers were as of mid-October. So we're talking just a couple months into this thing. So there's time for that number to, to possibly increase. And, and certainly organizations will, will make an effort to, to do that. They are already um, to, to get the information out and, and uh, help people who want to. Um, but so, 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 again, that's the, you know, it's, it's a good start, but a long way to go. That That's the, the feeling among folks who have been advocating for this.
1: Yeah. I mean, it seems like we're talking about a, a population that doesn't have a tradition of voting. I mean, if if they haven't had voting rights for a number of years and some of these people, you know, you were talking decades. Uh, so it may take a while to sort of uh, yeah. bring them back into the, the fold. Yeah.
6: And, and the other thing that uh, advocates talked about is, look, this has been a confusing issue for a long time, even for yeah. people in this population who may be interested in registering if they've been following the news on this, this thing has gone back and forth and maybe there's going to be legislation, maybe there's going to be an amendment, maybe there's not, and and, and it could be very confusing right. for a lot of those folks mm-hmm. uh, too. So so that's where the education part of it comes in too. And, and look, we got to acknowledge that there may be a, a share, whatever number, whatever percentage of that is, of folks who just aren't are interested in, in being voters too. I mean, uh, the likelihood that all 30,000 are going to register to vote seems pretty
1: low. Right. As a public service, uh, let us remind you that the deadline for early voting registration is Saturday, October 24th, either through the Iowa DOT website or your county auditor's office. Of course, in Iowa, we have same-day registration at the polls on November 3rd. Mm -hmm. Speaking of polls, I heard a story on NPR the other day that quoted a pollster saying that you could live a perfectly happy life without paying attention to polls
6: what? I'll have to take their word for it.
1: Yeah, who doesn't love a, who doesn't love a horse race, huh? So Aaron, we, we've seen a number of polls this week, and they probably made some people happy and others not so happy. Um, latest numbers on the presidential race and the U.S. Senate rates in Iowa, as well as the U.S. House races. Uh, where do things stand? Well,
6: well, James Lynch. Let me tell you, if you like a horse race, I got one for you that's neck and neck. Uh, All right, coming, coming down the home stretch, coming
1: down to the wire, it's going to be a photo finish. By right. a loan. Okay, yeah. All right. That's
6: right. Um, the 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 Senate race. Uh, we had two polls in particular this week: Monmouth and, and Emerson. And the, the short version, if you want a, a, a two-word explanation of this, and, and forget everything else, is this thing's a toss-up. It's, uh, it's, it's anybody's race still. Um, the Monmouth poll showed them in, in a literal tie. Teresa Greenfield and Joni Ernst at 47% apiece. And Emerson had uh, Ernst ahead by 1.4645. So those are literally uh, toss-ups, obviously, both within the margin of error. Um, both can go either way. Um, what's interesting to me, aside from that turnout model that I talked about before, which, which again, was the case here, um, in the Monmouth poll, the low turnout model, Greenfield has a 6% advantage. Now, that's almost uh, – I, I wrote this up, and I almost didn't put that in because what are the odds we're going to have a low turnout at this point? That seems pretty, pretty unlikely. But but it, it, anyways, what's what's interesting to me about this Senate race, too, is that Joni Ernst, and not by a lot, but consistently, pulls behind Donald Trump in Iowa. Um, Mm I, I know I expected otherwise, and I think if you would have talked to most people in in politics coming into this election, that they would have not have expected that, that they would have expected the opposite, that Joni Ernst would be a little bit ahead of Donald Trump in Iowa, but she has consistently been a a point or two behind him in Iowa and was again in both of these polls. Um, so that's, that's interesting to me and I got to believe if those numbers are, true, and they've been consistent enough across the number of polls that that you have to believe that they are, Um, that's got to be a concern for the Ernst uh, campaign. Um, And speaking of that uh, presidential race, same thing. It's a toss-up in Iowa. Um, Monmouth had it 48-47 for Trump, and Emerson had it uh, 48-46 for Trump. So uh, President and Senate, very true, very real toss-ups at this just 11 days out.
1: Let's take a a quick trip around the state and look at some of the at the U.S. House races. And and Brett, we'll start with you over in the 4th District. Uh, Monmouth and Change Research both reported that race in the 4th District has narrowed many Iowans, mostly Republicans, find that hard to believe. I'm pretty sure that poll was conducted before the GOP State Senator Randy Feinster and and Democrat J.D. Scholten debated. Is this race getting closer? Did the debate change anything? And why did they debate now? (laughs) Um, yeah, so that Monmouth poll, in
3: bo- as Aaron mentioned, there's both a high and low voter turnout. Um, it was surprising, you know, for, for myself who's covered, you know, this congressional district for so many years, it was surprising. It was a, a 5 or 6% um, lead for Feenstra. So there's been a series of internal and, and um, um, independent polls for anywhere from 20 down to 5 so that So the Des Moines Register was 5 um, this Monmouth was five. So, um, you know, that that is certainly a lot closer than what you would expect in a voter in a district. The fourth district where, where the voter registration advantage for Republicans is like 70,000 people. Um, so, it, I, again, I find those very intriguing. Um, I talked to I'm, I have a weekend a piece. That's our final preview uh, for, for this um, race. And I talked to a professor. And he chalked it up to JD Shulman being in the race for the second time in a row and having become a uh, you know learned learned his lesson so to speak um, from two years ago when he came within three percent of Steve King, that he's uh, very good at at hitting his points and and you know work, working the the district very well. He's um, as he has mentioned he's hit every single every single town in the district, three hundred and sixty or so towns in the district that he's visited. So. Um, as for the debate, um, why they debated, um, I, I know the journal at one point was was offering, and that didn't for whatever reason that didn't happen. But this one was was WHO, and you know certainly it's a good thing that they debated. You know, we, we it's good that we at least had one that where people could could see them. And just a couple of takeaways from the debate that I'd like to share um, was that, um, and I don't know if it changed the dynamic, but. I'd say they both acquitted themselves fairly well. Um, there was both instances where neither was very strong on specifics, where they kind of dodged the question, so to speak, without directly answering it. But there was there was two points that that uh, stood out for me, which was that I think Shulton wanted to um, go on the offensive because the very first question I, I'm just looking back at my notes was first question was how does how does faith um, inform your decisions and your you know, your stances on, on issues. And Shulton led off first and he gave a, a quick answer that, you know, uh, I'm sorry, the first part of his answer was that I, I show up, I listen and I, I bring people to the table. And then immediately he turned that on to um, the fact that he was holding, he holds public events and essentially that Feenstra is, is essentially meeting with businesses and county party and, and not holding public events in the same fashion. So a question on, on your faith and then boom, turn it that way it, I don't know that it particularly landed, but it showed that, you know, right off the bat from question one that he wanted to, to make some inroads and, and point out differences and essentially the story of the debate. And just to boil it down and make it short, sorry, is that um, the green new deal came up in several times um, that um, uh, Feenster is running ads. were saying that Schulten supports the green new deal, which is obviously, which is the um, framework to address climate change and, um, and Feinstra or I'm sorry, Schulton has said that um, I don't support it. Um, I, you know, he, he wants to address climate change, but the the plan as it roughly sits is, is not something that he could support, and that he has told Feinstra several times um, uh, personally to um, to take that, that ad down that he wishes those ads were not run, and then just to finish up Feinstra's um, view that um, his his proof that that Shulton supports the green new deal was a couple of
1: retweets where he, he mentioned the green new deal. Okay. All right. Amy, how about the first district? Um, I think you've just met with Finkenauer and Hinson. uh,
2: Yeah.
1: About that race.
2: Oh yeah. So apparently it's still a toss up. Um, It's weird though, because the Monmouth polls have, you know, kind of consistently shown and, and this is, kind of really the only polling that's happening in this district but i mean it shows Hour leading hints in 52% to 44% which i mean that's outside the bounds of you know their their margin of error but i mean it is still a toss up i think democrats and republicans are both really looking at this seat um finkenauer is being challenged by this well funded and well known um, Republican candidate Ashley Hinson. So I think this is really one that everybody's going to be watching. But it's interesting. You know, I asked him some questions. I asked him the same questions just to get, you know, their their divergent answers um, on COVID relief. Um, they, they both really support um, more paycheck protection program funding. Um, for Iowa farmers, they're talking about, you know, very similar things as well. Um, Hinson even, you know, was talking about immigration reform. I think the the race is really, um, they're both trying to really project themselves as moderates, which I found really interesting, but maybe not surprising because it is such a swing district. Of course, you know, Finkenauer took the district from Republican. Um, that Republican took it from the one vacated by Bruce Braley. And Bruce Braley, of course, took it from Nussel. So this district has swung in recent decades. and And so it's really not surprising, I think, that they're both adopting really similar positions, not all across the board. They do have divergent ideas, but I think it's sort of, they're both looking at, um, you know, if I am, like like Brett was saying, if I take attack too far to my left or my right, I risk alienating this district that's so very, very close in um, voter makeup. And I think both of them are are playing it really safe. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Tom, how about the second district? It looked like Monmouth moved that from um, red to blue. Um, Does does that uh, line up with what you're hearing and seeing there?
0: Uh, yeah so um, the the poll had Democrat Rita Hart leading Republican marionette Miller Meeks 49 um, percent to 43 percent that was a, a swing from Monmouth's poll in August that had Miller Meeks ahead 47 uh, percent to 44 percent um I guess I was a little bit surprised by that I was getting the sense that uh, that uh, while Rita Hart may have a, a slight advantage over Miller Meeks that the race was was a little closer Um. You know that said, this is Miller Meeks' fourth attempt running for the seat. Uh, she had successfully ran against Dave Lobsack three times, and and voters in in the district, um, you know, given their um, their their voting history, have, have been happy with with Dave Lobzak and in Rita Hart. I think they see a candidate who uh, who's very similar, someone who's taken a centrist approach, uh, someone who is focused on on kind of kitchen table issues of. Healthcare, social security, um, anti-corruption, in, in response to the uh, pandemic, um, she's someone who has Democrats, Republicans, and Independents um, uh, supporting her campaign. Um, she's mm-hmm. she's a, a pragmatist who's kind of steered clear of a single payer healthcare system as an alternative to to the Affordable Care Act. Uh, she crossed party lines to vote for a Republican bill to to help farmers struggling with with high healthcare premiums. Um, a, a vote for when she's bizarrely being criticized by, uh, the, the GOP over. Um, but, uh, she's, she's open to a wide range of, of solutions to deal with problems like gun violence, immigration, climate change, and, and, uh, and, ensuring up the, the country's social safety net. Um, Miller Meeks also has more moderate tendencies. You know, they both support more paycheck protection funding, comprehensive immigration reform, um, you know, getting, getting another, um, coronavirus relief bill passed that, that, that includes, um, um, that, uh, um, additional, um, federal assistance for, for those who, who are unemployed. Um, but, uh, from, from the voters I've, I've talked to, um, you know, there's, um, there's kind of a, um, uh, uh, a, a worry or maybe a, 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 a wariness a little bit that, um, that, you know, Miller Meeks, like, um, like, like other Republicans um, who are running and other Republicans in Congress that, you know, that she, um, she'll be in lockstep with, with lockstep, excuse me, with Donald Trump. And I guess they're they're, um, looking for someone um, who, uh, who, 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 again, is, is a little bit more of a, of a centrist and a a pragmatist and, um, you know, might be willing to push back on, on, on some things. Okay. And Aaron,
1: the, the third district is a rematch between uh, Cindy Axney and David Young. Um, same results as 2018, or is that district going to flip?
6: Well, the, the polling right now uh, looks uh, similar, um, if not a little bit better uh, for Cindy Axne. Um, the latest Monmouth poll um, has her up nine points, 52 to 43. I should just toss in here really quick. Um, this is a great poll to at least give us some sense of what's going on in these uh, districts, uh, as someone, uh, I think it was Amy noted, the polling is rare on these congressional races. Uh, but, but there's partially a reason for that too. Pollsters in general are, are hesitant to drop into congressional, uh, races just cause it's hard to get a sufficient sample size to get a good reading of the room and, and it can be dangerous. And they can wind up being way off. And and so there's hesitance on pollsters. So I just thought I should throw that caveat on there as we discuss all these. But that said, um, the third district has been consistent. A month ago, had Axne up six. So in October has her growing that lead uh, by a couple points. Um, What was interesting is they broke down those results by county and uh, uh, for people who aren't familiar with the third district, a Democrat wins here by blowing up the margin in Polk County and then surviving basically everywhere else um, in the district. The other, I, I'm sorry, I don't know the number of counties off the top of my head. Um, um, let's see here. I think it says in this piece, um, other, well, I can't find it. I apologize. But anyways, um, so, so Cindy Axley's numbers in Polk County have gotten a little better compared to what she two years ago, and her numbers have improved significantly in those other counties. So that makes it even harder, if that's accurate, for David Young, the Republican, to knock her off this time around if she's actually lowering her deficits in those rural counties in that area, because that's how, conversely, the Republican wins in this district is by um Mounting up big margins in those rural counties, and right now Cindy Axne is actually improving her numbers in that area. Again, if this uh, polling is accurate, so so that puts uh, again if that's accurate, that puts her in a good position to keep her seat.
1: And then there's the Senate race that uh, um, this week the University of Virginia's crystal ball moved the Senate race into the toss-up column. It had been. Uh, Uh, in the leaning Republican, um, they said said Joni Ernst is looking more like an underdog. And Greenfield, I think as um, Aaron alluded to earlier, Greenfield seems to be pulling even with and sometimes ahead of Joe Biden, while Ernst, on the other hand, is not pulling as well as Donald Trump in Iowa. Todd, the, the conventional wisdom about this race was that Ernst needed to find a way to distance herself from the president. But is it to her advantage to frame herself as an ally of Trump, despite his overall uh, unpopularity? Um, maybe she distanced
5: herself too far? Well, I don't, I don't know that there was any chance that she was going to be able to distance herself very far. I mean, she's consistently supported the president when he's done outlandish things. She sort of offered some tepid criticism, but not anything that would you know, create much daylight. I mean, she's she's been a Trump Republican throughout the four years he has been president. One of one of the most solid supporters, and from a state, frankly, where uh, you know top Republicans have been all have been very supportive of the president and have sort of tied their fortunes to his. and And I'm not sure she could have undone that knot if she wanted to. And for better or for worse, she's gonna she's gonna basically fare. Uh, you know, part of how she does on election day is is going to be tied to how well he does.
1: Mm-mm. And then the big event of the week was the second presidential debate. Uh, after a bye week, Donald Trump and Joe Biden met for the second and final debate. That, uh, as uh, one headline I saw this morning said, "More debate, less drama." Um, Todd was the sequel better than the the first debate uh, did the mute button the moderators not yours uh help make it more palatable
5: uh it, it did seem to help and i think it also helped that that Kristen welker did a fantastic job moderating the debate and we saw chris wallace yes. have a lot of trouble yes. and she she kept a lot more control over what was happening last night than than uh chris was able to but Uh, yeah, I mean, it was, the the tone was different. It was still, uh, you know, the president was still, you know, driving fact checkers to exhaustion by, you know, telling a few fibs, well, probably more than a few. And, uh, you know, but he was, he was less sort of, at least for the first uh, half or so of the debate, it was more restrained. He, he sort of started, started to be the Trump of old in the last Mm -hmm. 45 minutes of the debate. But, uh, and you know he did better, and I actually thought Joe Biden did much better and, and turned in probably one of his better debate performances. So uh, yeah, I, you know overall it was it was it was easier to watch. But still, I think I think it was Stephen Colbert who had the best analysis. That it felt like we were getting our our final wisdom t- wisdom tooth pulled. <laughs> so now I guess it's time for some, you know, good ice cream. <laughs> yeah, <an> <laughs> <Why not? laughs>
1: It, it struck me watching it that um, for a lot of the debate, Joe Biden seemed like an angry old man. He mm. really got wound up and, and he, you know, he was red in the face and and he was really coming on pretty hot and, and which doesn't help him. He he gets tongue tied and sort of loses his train of thought when he does that. And, but um, yeah, and, and again. It was like when he turned and he looked right into the camera and talked about the people at home that seemed to be the strongest moments in the debate for him. Um, mm-hmm. And to me, uh, the president's strongest moments when he were when he just kept asking Joe, you know, like, you've been there 47 years, you're in the White House for eight years, why didn't you do all this stuff? Um, I mean, mm-hmm. it's just... It, but uh, I don't know that it changed anything. I don't know that it changed anyone's mind. I'm, and I think it probably uh you know uh, it, it's probably silly to think that these debates will change anyone's mind because we've become so polarized and and you know y- you go in cheering for your guy and and you're not gonna switch sides during the middle of this uh I, I don't know any any takeaways from anyone on the debate whether it uh um changed anything or there were highlights uh shed did this shed any light on uh, this, campaign.
2: Maybe it's that the uh, Republicans that were waiting on the sidelines to see if they could stomach voting for Trump saw something in this debate where he was actually talking about the issues where he wasn't necessarily interrupting all the time that they might be able to then go out and vote for him. Possibly.
1: Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Um that he he didn't as as someone told me this morning um, talking about who will win this race, they said people hate Donald Trump more than they hated Hillary Clinton four years ago. So Uh, maybe maybe that was it, that they, if Trump's performance didn't make them hate him as much as um, (laughs) they did two weeks ago. Right. Well, that's it for this edition of On Iowa Politics. I hope it was worth your time. If you liked it, tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you find your podcasts, send fan mail to podcast at thegazette.com. You can find us on the home pages of the Quad City Times, the Sioux City Journal, Muscatine Journal, Mason City Globe Gazette, Waterloo, Cedar Falls Courier, and the Cedar Rapids Gazette milk and eggs will take us out if you know an iowa band or musician who should be on our show send us a sound file and subscribe to us on iowa politics or itunes and stitcher for brett amy aaron tom todd and our producer Stephen, i'm james lynn thanks for listening and stay well
4: there's a hole in your heart and you want to feel it so bad every time you fall asleep you cry so you better take your mind Fall down all bitter and die Fall down all bitter and die Before you fall down bitter and die Yeah, you better take your mind And put it somewhere else for a while Before you fall down all bitter and die There's a space in your mind And you want to feel it so bad Every time you try and think you cry So you better take your soul and Put it somewhere else for a while Before you fall down done and every time you think of it you cry so you better take your heart and put it somewhere else for a while before you fall down